Astatine was one of the several elements predicted to exist by Dmitry Mendeleev, back when he drew up his first periodic tables. He called it Eka-Iodine, following a common schema for his placeholder names of predicted elements. Wherever his predicted elements belonged on the table, he'd take the name of the element directly above and add the prefix Eka. Eka-Boron, Eka-Silicon, Eka-Manganese, etc. Eka was the Sanskrit word for one, so he was basically calling them boron plus one, silicon plus one, and so on. In very rare instances, theorists sometimes used the prefixes dvai and tri for two or three places lower on the periodic table. But there exists a world of difference between proposing something's existence and proving that thing's existence. That was especially true for astatine. It gained notoriety in the early 20th century for being one of the most elusive elements that scientists were looking for. It even made the pages of Time magazine in 1931 where it was dubbed, quote, the rarest and most fugitive thing on Earth. Thankfully, chemists finally did apprehend the rogue atom, so we shouldn't have nearly as much trouble learning about it today. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we'll peer down the spectroscope at astatine. The writers at time were more accurate than they might have known in their assessment of element 85. In the entirety of the planet's crust, there are only a few grams of astatine. The element is one of the halogens, those caustic, highly reactive elements from fluorine down. Astatine would probably be a lot like the others, but it's hard to know for sure. It's exceptionally difficult to study, thanks to its aforementioned rarity, as well as its radioactivity. It's predicted to be a little odd compared to its siblings. Pretty much all of the elements near the bottom of the table are things start to get a little weird down there. While the others in this file are non-metallic and diatomic, with an existential preference for the gaseous state of matter, there's a good chance astatine is a monatomic solid, and it sits right in that blurred demarcation between metals and non-metals. Much like technetium, element 85 has a long history of scientists claiming its discovery, only for those claims to later be invalidated. Those scientists weren't hacks, though. Many of them are among the most respected names in chemistry, even if they're not quite household names like the Curies. Why don't we meet a few of them? Fred Allison was born on the 4th of July, 1882, and his intelligence was apparent from the start. Right after graduating from Emory and Henry College, he became a professor of algebra, history, and English. He did that for a couple of years until the college president suggested that he pursue an advanced degree. And he did. For the next 13 years, he would alternate, spending one year working on his science degree at Johns Hopkins University, then one year teaching science at Emory and Henry, 
In his free time, he headed the school's physics department, which, incidentally, didn't exist until Allison founded it. His studies involved lots of work with magnetism, light, and thermodynamics, and in the course of his research, he devised a new approach to spectroscopy, the Allison Magneto Optic Method. He used his eponymous method to measure time lag in the Faraday effect, or as Scientific American helpfully explains, quote, the rotation of plane polarized light carried out by the application of a magnetic field to any particular solution of a substance. For our purposes, we can simply say that he would generate a magnetic field around a thing, then observe what happened when he shot light at the thing. In this way, he could identify which elements were present in said thing. In 1935, he claimed to discover a new element within a sample of monazite sand, element 85. He dubbed it Alabamine, after the state where he lived. There's nothing wrong with magneto-optical spectroscopy per se, except that he was eyeballing his measurements. No precise tools used here. The recorded results were just what Allison thought he saw. Naturally, once word got out, this cast some doubt on his discoveries. A scientist named Francis Slack built his own magneto-optical instrument, completely to spec, but he and his grad students at Vanderbilt were entirely unable to replicate Allison's results. No one else was able to either. His discoveries were considered invalid. You may remember Irving Langmuir as the last person to speak with Gilbert Lewis before the latter was found dead on his laboratory floor. He would probably prefer to be remembered for anything else and he did accomplish a lot throughout his career. He was influential to the fields of electricity, fluids, plasma physics, meteorology, and more. He was highly respected by anyone who knew his name, Lewis notwithstanding. In 1953, Langmuir gave a now legendary talk about pathological science. That was his name for the circumstance where a researcher convinces themselves their experiment got the result they wanted to get. For instance, Charles believes there are canals on the surface of Mars. When he looks through the telescope and sees long, straight trenches on the planet's surface, he deduces that those are, in fact, evidence of canals on Mars. There is no dishonesty involved, Langmuir explained. But people are tricked into false results by a lack of understanding about what human beings can do to themselves in the way of being led astray by subjective effects, wishful thinking, or threshold interactions. He had a handful of examples, like cases where people found so-called evidence of UFOs, or ESP. But his first illustration was the case of Fred Allison and his magneto-optical spectroscopy. He called it, quote, one of the most extraordinary of all cases of pathological science. Like Langmuir said, there was no dishonesty here. Allison wasn't a charlatan. He was actually a pretty great physicist with a long career after that. But nothing quite matched the infamy he earned over the Allison effect and his mistaken claims of discovery. 
Well, sort of. It seems like it depends who you ask. For instance, the Auburn University College of Science and Mathematics is happy to claim that Fred Allison was, quote, a renowned laboratory physicist who also discovered astatine, parenthetical, originally called alabamine. And they simply leave it at that. The next claim to discovery was made in 1937 by Rajendralal Day. He was a chemist in Dhaka, which today is the capital of Bangladesh, but at the time was part of India, which at the time was occupied by the British. He proposed the name Dakin, which seems like a reference to his hometown, but no one knows for certain. Very little is known about Day. In the 1920s, he studied under Lise Meitner and Otto Hahn in Germany, those two will become important in future episodes, and his work continued into the 1970s. Alas, as one book puts it, information on the life of Rajendralal Day seems to have vanished with his person. Whoever he was, his claim is considered baseless because if he really had been handling as much astatine as he claimed, he would have been obliterated by its radiation. 6,000 kilometers away, Horia Hulbej and Yvette Cochois actually might have been onto something. Both of them had studied under Jean Perrin and Hulbej under Marie Curie. By the time they opened their lab in Romania, Cochois and Hulubej were considered the experts on X-ray radiation. Cochois might even be the greatest woman in science you've never heard of, although there is a lot of competition for that title. She graduated from the Sorbonne, where she would eventually teach and become chair of chemical physics, and she later became president of the French Society of Physical Chemistry. She earned nearly a dozen medals and awards through her long career, and she never lost steam. In 1999, she had a conversation with an Orthodox monk. It must have been quite a profound conversation because she converted and was baptized in the Romanian Orthodox religion. Sadly, she contracted bronchitis during the trip and died only a few days later. Cochois was buried at the monastery she had just visited, and in her will, she also left them all her money. But back in the 1930s, she and Hulubej were using X-ray spectroscopy to hunt down elements 85 and 87. They were bombarding radon with radiation and examining the resulting spectrum. With scientific instruments, it's worth noting, not just taking a casual look. They found an emission line at 151 Siegbonds, precisely what was expected for Eka iodine. They published papers on this work in 1936 and 1939, and a former student of theirs was able to replicate their results. It was looking pretty likely that element 85 had been found. In 1942, those results were replicated yet again, this time in Austria by Berta Karlich and Trode Berner. At the time, it was exceptionally rare to see one woman doing scientific research, let alone a team of two. They were regarded highly, too, for their work at the Institute for Radium Research in Vienna. 
independently, they might have found Element 85 using similar methods in 1942, and their work highlighted how some previous claims were invalid. They knew nothing about Hulubeige and Cauchois, though. The occupying Germans made international collaboration rather difficult. And there were yet more teams in the race for Element 85. There was a team at Berkeley that included our old friend Emilio Segre, and they took a different approach to the search. They were trying to synthesize the element, the same way they produced technetium a few years earlier. And in this pursuit, they were successful, no question about it. Physicists Walter Minder and Alice Lee Smith also made claims of finding element 85, but said claims were spurious. No one could replicate their results, and what's most notable about this attempt was that they proposed a couple of names. First, Helvetia, after the Roman word for Switzerland. When that research was debunked, they came back with slightly revised work and said, how about Anglo-Helvetium? As the dust of the war started to settle, the scientific community started to sort things out. Hulubej wrote a paper emphasizing his claim of first discovery, and noted Karlik and Bernard's later work by saying, not incorrectly, that it supported his findings. He also suggested the name Dor, or Dorium, short for saying longing for peace in Romanian. Friedrich Panath swooped in to untangle this knot. He was an Austrian radio chemist a high-ranking member of the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, and he was going to decide the names for disputed elements. Not just element 85, but 43, 75, and others, too. His decisions were published as an editorial in Nature in 1947. The Berkeley team was recognized as the undisputed discoverers of element 85, and they were given the privilege of naming the element. They're the ones who came up with astatine, from the Greek astatos, meaning unstable, plus the I-N-E suffix used by all the other halogens. Later in the editorial, Panath addresses all the other work people had done in the pursuit of element 85. Leaning pretty heavily on the work of Karlik and Bernard, he said, quite definitively, that all former claims to the element's discovery had been disproven. That's largely correct, but the research he was citing said nothing about Charcois and Hulubeige. It was neither refuted nor even addressed by name in Panath's editorial, nor in Karlik and Bernard's papers. But what was done was done. Panath wasn't going to retract what he had published. Plus, Hulubeige's credibility had been damaged since he had also claimed to discover Element 87, a claim that was unequivocally disproven. None of this hullabaloo ruined anybody. Pretty much everyone involved went on to have long and illustrious careers that contributed to science in other ways that were just as important. Still, Charcois and Hulubeige must have felt a bit of a sting whenever somebody mentioned astatine. I can only hope it would put their souls at ease if they knew their story would be told some 80 years later, 
on a podcast. The longest lived isotope of astatine only has a half-life of eight hours-ish, which makes acquisition and display somewhat problematic. If you did seek out this ephemeral element, your sample would have to be microscopic. Not only would it be extremely difficult to acquire a macroscopic sample, but its sheer radioactivity would be highly hazardous. It was a pretty big deal when scientists were able to amass 5 nanograms of the stuff. Since only a gram or two is present in all the Earth at any given time, it's practically impossible to find a sample in nature. However, new atoms of astatine are constantly being created as part of uranium's and thorium's decay chains. What's a decay chain, you ask? Well, you might be aware that, over time, radioactive elements turn into other, stable elements. That's what the half-life measures, the time it takes for half of the element to change into something else. Uranium and thorium generally wind up as lead, quite a stable destination. But it's not just a quick trip from A to B. Uranium will turn into radium, which decays into radon, which becomes polonium, and so on and so forth. As part of this process, uranium will occasionally pop out an atom or two of astatine. It's very rare, and that astatine only exists for a second or two before it turns into bismuth, but this process is happening constantly, untold billions of billions of quadrillions of times every day. So there's a sort of agreed-upon solution among element hunters. If you have a moderately sized chunk of the right kind of rock, granite maybe, about the size of a baseball, there's probably some uranium in there. If there is, then it's certainly decaying. And every once in a while, for a brief moment in time, as part of that decomposition, the tiniest amount of astatine will flicker in and out of existence. It's hard to say how often that happens. Maybe once a week, maybe once a year. But within that big old rock, it does happen. No one is going to dispute that. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To learn what Langmuir considered to be the six symptoms of pathological science, visit episodictable.com A-T. Next time, we'll see if we detect any radon. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you that, on a geological timescale, we ourselves have only just barely flickered into existence. <laughs>